So as you've heard, as we've been teaching through Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the church is a mess in Corinth. It looks anything but the body of Christ. It looks anything but like what the church should be. We have seen that there's rifts in this body of believers. There's division over apostolic leadership. There's division over philosophy and theology. There's divisions over when to worship and how to worship and what to eat and what to wear and over marriage and liberties. They're suing each other in the public square. They're embracing worldliness, sexual immorality, adultery, fornication, and those who are not practicing those things They're failing to discipline those who are. And on top of that, they had turned the Lord's Supper into a drunken party for the rich. They looked nothing like the church. So the question that we have to ask is, well, what does the church look look like? What is the church? What does it mean to be the church? What is the purpose of us gathering together uh, on a weekly or a bi-weekly basis? What is the Spirit of God doing in our midst? Now, if you ask a variety of people what the church is and what it means to be the church, you're going to get a lot of different answers. Some might say it's where I go for about an hour on a Sunday morning and a gentleman makes me feel guilty for an hour and then I go home and I try to forget the message. Some may say it's a quasi-governmental entity where there's a hierarchy of leadership that tells us what to do and how to act. Some may say it's a social services institution that passes out food boxes and gas cards and bus passes to the less fortunate. Some may say it's just a building with a steeple that I pass on the way to work. Or it's a social club where people who think the same and look the same and talk the same and share group hugs and have sing-alongs meet. Or it's just a business operating in weddings and funerals and baby dedications. Now, there may be small amounts of truth to some of those, but all of those are very misguided. And sometimes the church is responsible for some of those misconceptions. But what does Scripture tell us that the church is? It's something very different than most of those things. The true church is an indestructible, eternal, supernatural, living organism created by God for the purposes of God to bring glory to God. And at the head of it all is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We say it's indestructible because Jesus told Peter in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. We say it's eternal because Jesus will one day present his church to his father unblemished without spot or wrinkle as we learn in Ephesians chapter 5. And the church is supernatural and alive because of what we see here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. See, the church in Corinth, they reflected none of these things. 
Instead, it was division and strife and backbiting and worldliness. But in the midst of all of that chaos, do you know what they were doing? They were boasting in their spirituality. They were boasting in their spiritual gifts. When, when we look at the church in Corinth, the spirit just seemed distant. Yet in their minds, they were spiritual giants. So here in chapters 12, 13, and 14, Paul is dealing with the topic of spiritual gifts. And this is probably one of the most misunderstood and misused topics in all of Scripture. And that should be really no surprise to us. If there's anything of spiritual significance, if there's anything of eternal significance, if there's anything that builds into the kingdom of God, the devil is always present doing his best trying to confuse and pervert it. So when we talk about spiritual gifts, it's no surprise that we can look into the, at the, the, the climate of the church today and we see churches operating at the extremes. We know that the enemy loves to turn the dial from truth to either the left or the right. He doesn't care which side it falls on as long as, long as it's not straight up and down. As long as it does not fall in line and there's no balance, he's okay if we're either too conservative in the sense where we're calculated about the Spirit of God, where the Spirit of God has been replaced with formulas and earthly wisdom and programs and, and it's all about worldly uh, wisdom pulled from consumerism. What does... What does uh, uh, What do the crowds want? What is the latest trend? What's the latest fad? How do we fill the pews? What programs can we put in place to grow in number and the spirit of God is neglected? So that's one extreme, right? Where we plan the spirit out of our service. Where everything that we do on a Sunday morning is planned down to the second and all in an attempt to conjure up a spiritual work. What's the other extreme? Maybe some of you have experienced this. Pastor Chuck coined the term charismania, where a service looks like a bunch of caffeinated toddlers. Do you know what I mean? If you ever walk into our daycare room and, and you catch them right before lunchtime, it's chaos. It's absolute chaos, but you walk into some church services, and again, I don't mean this um, to to demean or elevate ourselves above uh, anyone else, but it is chaotic. People are yelling out during the service. Um, The Word of God often has a very uh, uh, small place in that particular service. It's often extra biblical, things that we do not see in scripture at all. And again, the enemy is just fine with us living at those extremes. Paul brings us into balance here. He begins to explain to the church in Corinth, you boast in spiritual gifts, but let me tell you this, the spirit's, the only thing the Spirit's doing with you is convicting 
Because your pride and your view of how the spiritual gifts should operate, they're out of balance. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Paul uses this phrase again that we've seen before, now concerning, because he's responding to questions that have come to him from those who are genuinely concerned about the condition of the church in Corinth. Now concerning spiritual gifts. We add the word gifts there. Really, the the Greek translation is now concerning spirituals. Now, if you remember, Paul has discussed what it meant to be a spiritual person. And when you ask people today, what does it mean to be spiritual? Again, you're going to get a hundred different responses. But when Paul talks about being spiritual, what is he talking about? Being filled with the Spirit of God. And so he says, now concerning spirituals, now concerning what it looks like to have the Holy Spirit alive and active in your life and to walk in that spirit. And that's displayed through gifts. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant. Now, Paul has addressed, again, a laundry list of problems within the church, but just like any loving shepherd does, he doesn't leave them hopeless. He's now providing them with a road back to being the church. Now, we can't talk about spiritual gifts without discussing the person behind the spiritual gifts. And yes, it is a person, Now, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, oftentimes we think about a power or a force from God, but the Holy Spirit is the third person in God's three-part nature. And as we think about the gifts of the Spirit and how the Spirit operates in us and through us, I want to take you on a, a little trip back into the Gospels. Because I think one way we can understand how the Spirit operates in our lives is looking at the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, we know Jesus is fully God, and he's fully man. 100% God and 100% man. And when we think about the supernatural, excuse me, the supernatural work he did on earth, often we think, okay, of course he did that. He is God. Of course he did supernatural things because he is God, which is true. But let me show you a few verses here. Why did God anoint Jesus with the Holy Spirit and power as Peter teaches Cornelius' household in Acts chapter 10. Why was there that moment where John baptized Jesus and a dove descended on, on Jesus? And we read in Acts chapter 10, 36, as Peter is sitting with this Roman centurion, he explains in 10, 36, the word which God sent to the children of Israel preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, that word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. 
who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Peter's talking about a, an event in John 1.32, where we read that John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptized with water baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So here you have Jesus, who is 100% God, but also 100% man. And it is important that Jesus receives the anointing of the Holy Spirit. He is baptized in the Holy Spirit and goes out in power to heal the sick, Give sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who have been captive. So why? He's God. Why would he be anointed with the Holy Spirit? Why is this so important? And then he goes and he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Later in Luke 4, we read things like Jesus in his hometown, reading from the the scroll of Isaiah, really his first public sermon. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because, I, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the captives free, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then, of course, Jesus says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What the prophet Isaiah spoke of, it's taking place now. That's what Jesus told his audience. And then throughout the Gospels, we also read things like Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Or it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons. That's what Jesus said. He didn't say, I, because I am God, I drive out demons. He said, it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons. And also, the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. What does this have to do with spiritual gifts? Everything. Everything. But we can't understand spiritual gifts until we understand the person by which they come. John 14, 12, Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will also do, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. Think about that. Jesus says to my disciples, anyone that will believe in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And not only that, greater works than these. And not in quality, in quantity. Because Jesus was one man. And that one man multiplied to 11 men. And those 11 men multiplied to thousands. And when I say men, guys, we know what we're saying, right? Humanity. 11 men 
to thousands of believers, to tens of thousands of believers, to hundreds of thousands of believers, all operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. In John 16, 7, Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. And then finally, that moment comes in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them to not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, They asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the example Jesus gave us as he loved and healed and shared the truth of repentance and salvation through his death and his resurrection. We operate in that same person and power of the Spirit that brought Jesus out of the grave and resurrected him the same spirit that brought us out of the grave and made us a new creation, that spirit lives in us. And he is essential to what we do when we gather together. If we're going to do this right and model and represent and reflect the person of Jesus Christ and bring glory to God, it will not happen apart from the Holy Spirit of God. As one author writes, the spirit-filled life is not a special deluxe edition of Christianity. It is part and parcel of the total plan of God for his people. Samuel Chadwick wrote in a uh, magazine back in 1911 called The, The Joyful News. The gift of the Spirit is the crowning mercy of God in Christ Jesus. It was not for this, it was for this all the rest was. The incarnation and crucifixion, the resurrection and ascension were all in preparation for Pentecost. Without the gift of the Holy Spirit, all the rest would be useless. The great thing in Christianity is the gift of the Spirit the essential, vital, central element in the life of and soul and the work of the church is the person of the Spirit. There's no wonder the enemy would want us to get this wrong. There's no wonder that the enemy would want us to miss this reality. So the question is, what is the Spirit doing in the church today? What is this third part of the Trinity doing in us and through us as we gather together? And that's what Paul explains. He is going to tell us what the Spirit is doing in our midst through us. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2. 
Paul says, here's what we know. He says, you know that you were Gentiles. Again, the church in Corinth was predominantly Gentile. Not completely. We know that there was some Jewish believers, some Jewish, Jewish converts as well. But he's speaking here to the Gentiles. You know that you were Gentiles. Carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works in, works all in all. So Paul starts by saying, here's what you already know, that at one time you were carried away by dumb idols, that at one time you prayed to idols and begged them to respond, to meet a need, but he said they're dumb. And that word in the Greek, it means mute, speechless, voiceless, powerless. They could do nothing, but you were still carried away by them however you were led. They guided and directed your lives. But that's the old life. The old life was powerless. You were ultimately led not by these idols, but your own lusts, your own desires. The idols just gave you something to manipulate gave you some form of spirituality, that you had a hole within you that knew that you needed to worship, so you used these idols to try to fill that hole, but ultimately you were your own God. Because these idols were made of wood with human hands. You would carve an idol, half of it would go into the fire, the other half would go on the mantle to worship. But they're mute, they're speechless, they're voiceless, they're powerless. And that was your old life. Now you have a new life where you serve the living God. The one who spoke the universe into existence. The one who created you and loves you and has a purpose for you. The one with infinite power. The one who is listening. Who wants to be sought after who wants to hear you cry out to him and he will guide you. He's a God who responds. He's a God who is able to do more than you could ever ask, hope, and think. So this is your new God, the one true God, and yet your lives don't reflect that. You were once this way now you have this opportunity, but you still look exactly like you did when you worship those dumb idols. Therefore, I make known to you, Paul says. Now, here he's addressing a rumor that had been floating around the church, that if you open yourself up to the Holy Spirit, you could be opening yourself up to demons and other spirits, and then you'd begin cursing Jesus Christ. And Paul answers very plainly, no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except the Holy Spirit. And in that, we see one of the primary functions of the person of the Holy Spirit. 
proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord over all. Jesus is the express image of his Father, and he points us to his Father, and the Holy Spirit living in us points people to the Son. The church in Corinth boasted about their spiritual gifts, but who were they pointing people to? Who were they manifesting? We'll see Paul use that word. Who were they making known? They were making themselves known. That is not the spirit. Anywhere man is elevated and man is celebrated and man is worshiped, that's not the spirit of God. If you go to a church where the pastor is, oh, no one teaches like him. No one has a connection to God like him. And that pastor accepts that praise And he doesn't tear his robe and say, man, I am not God. I have no unique relationship with him that you cannot have. That's not the spirit of God anywhere that man is being elevated in worship. And that's why I have such a great concern about modern Christian music today. Our hearts should break when people are worshiping us and not God. And if we're willing to accept that praise, then we have to really ask, is the Spirit at work here, or is it just me? Because where the Spirit of God is at work, Jesus is glorified. His name is made known. And we gladly take a back seat to that. And Paul says, no one full of the Spirit will curse Jesus. No one walking in the Spirit will call Jesus accursed. And I know sometimes there's a fear when we talk about the Holy Spirit because of past church hurts and past experiences. Well, I don't want to get involved in that. That can be a little bit ridiculous. No, you have to, but not in that kind of spirituality. We're talking about the Christian life, the abundance that comes from walking in God's very presence. It is absolutely essential. And if you wonder what the Spirit is going to do, He's going to glorify the name of Jesus. And if that's what you desire, say, Lord, more of that, more of Him. You know what Jesus promises? If we ask for more of his spirit, that's one prayer he always says yes. He gives liberally to those who ask. And really, when we pray, God, I want more of your spirit, what we're really saying is, God, I'm yielding more of myself to your spirit because you've already done the work. You've already baptized me in your spirit. You've already given me that gift, and I want to yield myself over to the work of your spirit in my life. Now, Paul says the working of the Spirit, it doesn't always look the same, does it? It's, we don't gather together, and we don't look the same, and act the same, and think the same, and that's not the church. The beauty of the church is our unity in the midst of our diversity, right? We are all so different, and Paul says there's different gifts, but the same Spirit. 
there's different ministries, and that word literally means table service. That means there's different opportunities to use our gifts. It's a horrible thing to believe, to think that the only gifted people are those who are on stage. Paul has something to say about that, too. But that is, that's silly. The church cannot be the church unless we are all operating in the different opportunities that God has given us. There are different gifts, the same spirit. There are different ministries or different opportunities to use that gift, but it's the same Lord. And there are different activities. That's work. That's living it out. That's God's power in action. It's where we get the word energy from, but the same God, the same Spirit, the same Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the same God. We see the Trinity right there in just those brief verses. So in short, we're uniquely gifted, every one of us who are born again, we're uniquely gifted through the same Spirit, we operate in different roles, and we exercise those gifts in different ways, but it is the same Spirit working through all of us. Just because there is diversity doesn't mean there should be division. Amen. And that's where the enemy likes to get in. Oh, you, you're doing this with your gift? No, you should be doing this. Oh, this one's more important. Oh, this one's not as important. There's diversity, but there should be no division. And again, Paul is beating that same drum again. There should be unity because there is unity in the Spirit, the Son, and the Father. There's perfect unity in the Spirit, the Son, and the Father. So let's look at some of these gifts. Look at verse 7 of chapter 12. Understand this. There's a number of lists in the New Testament when it comes to spiritual gifts. None of them are comprehensive. None of them are a complete list and a complete breakdown of what the spiritual gifts are because I don't think Paul wants us necessarily to just focus on these individual gifts. He's just giving us examples of what the Spirit is doing. So Paul writes in chapter 12, verse 7, but the manifestation, which means making known or appearing, or bringing to light. So the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. So what are the gifts for? Profit of the church. And when we're using our gifts, the Holy Spirit is being brought to light. And what does the Holy Spirit do? Points us back to Jesus. Each gift is given for the profit of all. So what is the Spirit doing? What are these gifts? Look at verse eight. For one is given the word of wisdom. Better translation is a word. It's logos. One is given a word of wisdom through the Spirit. So again, we can spend a lot of time explaining what each of these gifts are, but I'd rather just look at the life of ministry, in ministry of Jesus and point out Jesus operating in these gifts. So a word of wisdom through the Spirit, it's an inspired word 
from God. And one of the best examples I can think of is when the crowds came to Jesus, the lawyers, the priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, and they wanted to test Jesus, and they said, is it acceptable to pay taxes to Caesar? There's nothing really in Jewish law that deals with it. And they thought if Jesus said, yes, it is acceptable to pay taxes to Caesar, that he would lose his Jewish support, right? The Jews were all about Jesus coming in power, establishing his kingdom, overthrowing the Roman Empire. And if Jesus said, hey, yeah, we should be paying taxes to Caesar, man, that would lose that crowd, right? But if he said, no, do not pay taxes, then he would be guilty of sedition, And he would be probably arrested and thrown in prison, which they would be happy with. But Jesus has a word of wisdom. He takes out a coin or asks them to take out a coin. And he says, who's on the front of that coin? And they said, well, it's it's Caesar. And Jesus said, render to Caesar what's Caesar's. It's got his face on it, belongs to him but render to God what is God's. And whose image is on you? That's what Jesus was saying. Who who do you belong to? That's a word of wisdom. Cuts through the, the spin. It cuts through the distraction and the lies. And isn't there a lot of noise in the world today? We need the wisdom of God to cut through that and speak truth into people's lives out of love and care and concern, but a truth that cuts deep and causes, isn't, didn't Jesus do this all the time? Where they'd come and they tried to test him and he would say something and they just had nothing to say after that. They'd walk away sad. Hey, you without sin cast the first stone. And one by one they dropped their stones and they walked away. Now, we may think, oh man, I want to be that one. I want to be someone who owns other people. Do you think that's what Jesus was trying to do? Win a debate? Own somebody? You see that on YouTube all the time. So-and-so owns this silly liberal or whatever. That's not what it's about. It's about love and concern and building one another up. It's a wisdom from on high. It's not like worldly wisdom at all. It has a different air about it. And if we spend this long on every gift, we will not get out of here before dinner. So look at verse, oh, in that same verse, that's the word of wisdom. Speaking the truth of God in a way that is timely and relevant, but it's by the spirit of God. It's not our own intelligence by his leading. To another is given a word of knowledge through the same spirit. So what's a word of knowledge? Let me give you another example from Jesus' ministry. Jesus is sitting by a well in Samaria. He sends his disciples to go and get food. While they're gone, a woman shows up in the heat of the day, which is kind of unusual. Usually they collect water early in the morning when it's still cool. But she shows up and she gets water. And Jesus says, will you give me something to drink? And she's blown away that a man is speaking to her. 
and not only speaking to her, but asking to drink from her vessel. And you remember the conversation. Jesus begins sharing with her this water that you can drink from, that you'll never thirst again, and she doesn't understand it. What are, you, what are you talking about? You don't even have a vessel to draw up water. What is this water you can drink from and, and never thirst again? And then she tries to move on to like religious discussions. The Jews worship in the, the temple. We worship on this mountain. Where's the right place to worship? And, and finally, Jesus speaks a word of knowledge to her. Why don't you go and get your husband? Well, I have no husband. I know. You've been with many men. That was a word of knowledge. That was something that he could not have known. Well, of course he's God. But it's a unique spiritual insight that comes from God and God alone. I have so many examples of this happening in my own life. There was a time where Aaron was, uh, I think, two two or three months pregnant, um, and she miscarried. And um, we didn't share it with too many people. But I remember coming home from the doctor's appointment the day that we had found out and someone had moved into a new house and someone had completely did all of our landscaping in our backyard. God had just put it on their heart to go into our backyard and we had some weeds that hadn't been dealt with and um, they just completely cleaned up our backyard. And it sounds so little and almost irrelevant, but the timing was absolutely perfect. To walk home, and, and I'll be honest, I was struggling. If some of you know me, um, I, before I came to know Christ, um, my, girl, my ex-girlfriend at the time, I paid for her abortion. So I was struggling as a born-again believer, and after Aaron and miscarrying, thinking that I did not deserve to have children, and I had brought Aaron into that same reality. And, and just, that, just that simple act of kindness was kind of God's way of reminding me, no, I love you. I care about you. And that's, that's, it's so, it doesn't seem very dramatic, but isn't that the way God works? To just quietly reassure you, hey, I love you, and to use people in your church family to do that. Uh, To me, it's just a perfect example of God's, the way God uses his spirit to serve and build one another up. It was a gift of knowledge. Not a lot of fanfare, and they tried to stay anonymous. But it was God's love played out through his people. Look at verse 9. To another faith by the same Spirit. And this isn't faith necessarily for salvation. This is just a moment of exceptional confidence and courage. 
where God gives you a peace, hey, will you let them know everything's going to be okay? Again, I've experienced this before. It was actually the day I became born again when I was sitting in my car weeping because of all of the pain and suffering I had caused my family and those who loved me and my brother sitting next to me, my younger brother, and I'm crying so hard that I have to pull off to the side of the road. He has no idea what's going on. And he puts his hand on my shoulder and he says, everything is going to be okay. And it was. And I I don't think he was just looking for words. He was confident in that reality. And how could he have known that, yeah, everything was going to be absolutely okay because that was the day I gave my life to Christ. Faith, confidence, and courage, not in ourself, but in who God is. It is amazing to me when young people, um, I don't mean to pick someone out of the crowd, but I'll just, I won't use names. There was somebody on Sunday, or yesterday, on Saturday, she's in her early 20s, Um, she sits over there, she spoke at the women's tea. How many of you are absolutely terrified of speaking in front of people? Be honest. You get nauseous. Your head starts spinning. It's hard. Guys, it's hard getting up here. How many of you think it's easy to get up here and stand in front of everyone and be the primary focus for 40, 45 minutes? Abby does. Abby, come up here. But there's times where you're asked to do something that is just terrifying and you're reminded by God, no, this is not about you, it's about me. And when you're able to set that aside and say, you know what, my fear, my anxiety, none of that matters because God has asked me to step into a role and I trust him. I'm confident that if he has made this opportunity, he's gonna give me the words that I need to build up the body. That's faith. We need that supernatural faith. We need that courage in moments where there's no courage to be had. And that comes by the Spirit of God. Guys, if you know someone who's going through an extremely difficult trial, one thing I'd encourage you to do is pray for faith. Pray that God would give them courage and a reassurance that his promises are yes and amen. Another gift is the gift of healing, which you saw as the study began. (laughs) A little healing, a little cough drop goes a long, long way. But notice it says, into another gifts of healing by the same spirit. A lot of times I think, and again, we're not going to have time to go through all of these and, and we'll pick things up next week. But when we think about these gifts, a lot of times people are like, which, which gift do I have? Am I a healer? Am I a word of wisdom guy? Am I a word of knowledge guy? I don't know that that's all. When, when I look at my 15 years of ministry, I think God gives us what we need when we need it. It can be a gift of healing. It can be a word of knowledge. I think our responsibility is to just be faithful. 
God, whatever you want to do, by your spirit, it's not about me, it's you. Now, have I seen people exercise particular gifts on a pretty regular basis? Absolutely. But I don't think that's the only way God's spirit operates. The gift of healing. So this is just, we'll get deeper into this next week, but these are just a few ways that the Spirit of God is working in or desires to work in the church today to build one another up so that we may be equipped to go out and tell the story of who Jesus is. And these are supernatural things. These aren't human giftings. These aren't anything that we can do in and of ourselves. It is by the Spirit. So I pray that this morning as, as we leave here, we're just prone to forget about the work of the Holy Spirit. And that makes sense to some extent because the Holy Spirit is not trying to make his name known. He desires to make the name of Jesus Christ known. But let's not forget that everything we do as a body of Christ is dependent on the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit.